I think so often as a writer, you have these obsessions that you circle around again and again, and you keep writing about them and it never works. And you always kind of are frustrated. Um, and I think the diggers are, are something that have kind of been with me, so to speak, for a long time. This is the Your Shelf podcast, and I'm your host, Jay. If you want to support what we do and help us keep on interviewing interesting people and talking about the best books out there, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash yourself. Welcome back to the Your Shelf podcast for episode 9, Natural Strangeness with Rebecca Tamash. We'll be plumbing the depths of her wonderful book Strangers, Essays on the Human and Non-Human. Stay through until the end to hear Rebecca give a special reading of a passage from my favourite essay in the book, On Panpsychism. Hello and welcome, Rebecca Tomash. Thank you very much for joining us on the Your Shelf podcast. Um, so let's dive right in. What book would you most like to live inside of? Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. <laughs> um, that's a fantastic and very difficult question to answer. I think that I would quite like to live inside um, the book I Capture the Castle um, by Jodie Smith it's a slightly you know uh, sentimental choice in some ways but that kind of beautiful world of sort of um, nature and a kind of a ruined castle and a sort of hilarious family I think that's a book that I would be safe living inside a lot of the books I like are not books I would like to actually spend time in. So that would be the safest choice, I think. And it's a beautiful, funny, sweet book. Yeah. Wholesome. Um, if you could have a book recommendation from any person, living or dead, who would that be? Wow. You know what? I would take a book recommendation from Jamaica Kincaid, one of my favorite authors of all time. And I feel confident that any book she would select would be absolutely phenomenal. I think her taste would be about as close to perfect as you can get. Nice. And uh, what do your bookshelves look like? Uh, they, at the moment, they take up pretty much the entire wall um, of my living room. And for a brief period, they looked beautifully neat. But of course, I've now kind of got more books than can fit there. So now they're all piled up and messy, but that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> okay, you're going to have a literary dinner party uh, with four writers, and uh, they can be living or dead. Who are they going to be? Goodness, talk about putting me on the spot. <laughs> okay, so for the living, I'm going to bring back Jamaica Kincaid, mm -hmm. because again, having watched interviews and, and so on with her, she's just such a fascinating and intelligent person. So I'm going to bring Jamaica Kincaid. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring Jean Rhys. I'm going to bring the anonymous author of Gawain in the Green Knight. Nice. And I'm going to bring Banu Kapil. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good choice. I would like to attend that dinner party, please. I really would, too. <laughs> Can we make this happen? Yeah. Um, and final question from the lightning round now. Uh, are there any upcoming books that you're particularly excited about, looking forward to? 
Yes, there are um, a couple. I mean, I'm not sure if it counts as upcoming. It's just come out. Um, there's a new collection from the poet Daisy Lafarge uh, called Life Without Air, which just came out from Granter, which is phenomenal, really intelligent, sophisticated um, kind of experimental poetry. And I was lucky enough to read an advanced copy of the novel, The Manning Tree Witch, by A.K. Blakemore, mm -hmm. which is a phenomenal story of kind of witchcraft and the body and female experience, um, which obviously is, you know, very much within my interest, but um, that's really one to look out for. So we're going to be talking about uh, your latest book, Strangers, Essays on the Human and Non-Human. Uh, I wondered if sort of to begin with, you could give maybe just a, a very brief overview, kind of elevator pitch kind of thing as to what the, what the book is. And also maybe talk about the kind of seeds and germs of the ideas in the book, where it sort of came from, um, how it grew into what it is now. Sure. So um, the book is a collection of relatively short essays, which touch on different sort of factors of the relationship between the human and the non-human. So it's a book that thinks about ecological thought. It's a book that thinks about our kind of environmental collapse, climate change, the, the sort of moment of difficulty in which we are right now. But on a deeper level, it's a book that's really interested in the intimacy that we have with the strangeness of the non-human. It tries to kind of consider the fact that the non-human is always going to be unknowable and uncontainable by us but that at the same time, we are deeply connected to it. And that kind of strange paradox, you know, I suggest in the book, might be a way of potentially healing, or at least attempting to heal the relationship that we do have with our environment, which, you know, at the moment is, of course, very destructive. So I'm thinking through different ecological potentials there. Um, the germ of the book, you know, started really a long time ago for me. I did a PhD um, in creative and critical writing at UEA, and my sort of academic thesis was about how poetry might contain or think about the non-human. Um, so I was very interested in kind of uh, sort of ecological and environmental theory and, and so on. But for me, certainly up until this point, I felt that I had quite strong, quite direct ideas sort of drawn from all of that research and study that didn't quite suit the kind of openness of poetry, it just didn't seem right. And it felt that nonfiction, which is, you know, my, my other practice is, is kind of as an essay writer, was much more suited. However, I was also really keen to, you know, as much as I love academic writing, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to create something that was as accessible as possible, because I do feel that these are quite urgent issues that I want as many people to connect with as possible. Of course, I drew a huge amount from that academic writing. That's not a denigration. It's a certain kind of very important work, but that's not where I kind of wanted to, to put my focus. And so I tried to kind of merge these two practices that I've developed over my writing life, which is, you know, poetry and also uh, essay. And, you know, I think what that create is, created was a kind of hybrid. You know, it's a, it's a lyric essay. It's an essay that draws on the kind of potential poetry offers to language but at the same time it is non-fiction and it does have a kind of clearly stated philosophical and political perspective so that was my creative journey with it amazing thank you yeah i think that um that kind of lyrical quality 
and the sort of poeticness. Obviously, I was first introduced to your work through your book, Witch, your, your book of poems. Um, so then so I was very intrigued to see how you would approach something like the essay. And yeah, the, it just sort of straight away, it felt so so like the rest of your work in a way, even though it was a completely different form uh, and just so kind of easily readable, even when you're getting into some very kind of nitty gritty historical or political kind of, or even literary context that I might not have been familiar with. Everything felt so accessible and so um, kind of clear as well, which I think is not always the case, even with non-academic essays, clarity can be very hard to get, especially when you're dealing with more kind of cerebral and um uh, mystical issues at times as well mm. i think yeah thank you and you begin the book with the diggers in 1649 did you always know you were going to start there or was there a sort of as as it was all coming together why did it start there interesting i mean i don't think i knew that this essay would begin the collection when i started writing but i did know that the diggers would be part of the collection whatever happened I think so often as a writer, you have these obsessions that you circle around again and again, and you keep writing about them and it never works. And you always kind of are frustrated. Um, and I think the diggers are, are something that have kind of been with me, so to speak, for a long time. You know, I think I first heard about them in school, you know, when I was studying the English Civil War. And this idea of the fact that there was a kind of proto-communist, proto-environmental group, you know, as you say, in 1649 was, was fascinating to me. But so finally, when I was writing this book, nonfiction was the perfect, you know, sort of sphere in which to kind of engage with their politics. So I was sort of excited to write about them. But I think that the reason that I wanted it to start there and why I decided to kind of put that essay first is that in some ways I kind of wanted to plant my flag politically because, you know, some of the essays are more philo philosophical, more mystical, as you've said. Um, and I suppose the essay on the diggers is kind of making the point in a general sense that the kind of equality that we might consider as possible with the non-human world and the environment and the equality that we need to have amongst us as human beings is a shared and a connected aim and that you know it, environmental liberation will only come through the kind of liberation of all groups of human beings um and so I think I wanted to start there just to sort of lay the ground and to make sure that that sort of political knowledge of my perspective kind of underpinned everything that came after. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when you think about the fact that, you know, that was what, 371 years ago? Uh, <laughs> quick math there. Um, <laughs> I think that for, for some people, the sort of default response to sort of reading an essay in 2020, in which we are sort of witnessing such environmental catastrophe all the time, to sort of think, oh, 371 years ago, there were people leading the charge to sort of be more at one with the planet and have this kind of equality, as you say, mm. with, with the non-human. The cynic might be more inclined to be like, oh God, it's been 371 years and we're, <laughs> we're no better off kind of thing. But I think mm. that you find it quite a hopeful um, a hopeful thing. And I think that your, your book of essays on the whole is quite hopeful. And you obviously have that essay on grief and, you know, talking about sort of climate grief and how there has to also be climate hope. So I wondered if you could kind of talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, staying hopeful in the face of history and the present as well. Mm, I suppose, though, there is inevitably a lot of negativity in this book and I would never want to kind of shy away from that mm. um, because the relationship that we do currently have in the environment is so broken. At the same time, I think it 
if I was to offer a totally bleak, hopeless picture, that just seems to me almost intellectually lazy because, Mm. you know, there are still things that we can do. There are still possibilities. You know, I think in some ways it's that sense of possibility rather than likelihood that's so important when we think about the kind of environmental changes that we can make. And I think I, and I agree with you that in some ways looking back, I don't necessarily find it depressing. I do find it hopeful to know that this is something that we've kind of been wrestling with for a long time, but that also there are things we can look back to in the past that can inspire us now. Mm. You know, when I talk in the essay about this kind of um, Walter Benjamin idea of sort of different moments of the past being activated, and it's in those reactivations that we almost save the past, you know, that sense that it wasn't in vain because we draw from it and we gain strength from it. And in some way we kind of reanimate, you know, what may have failed in the time of the diggers can almost come good when we learn from it and kind of activate it now. So I find that quite powerful, but also, yeah, I think it can be very easy to slip into hopelessness um, Mm. about, you know, climate change. And I have absolute understanding and sympathy for anyone who feels that way. But I don't think that that as a dominant kind of emotional field is going to do anything that we need to do. You know, and I think there, there is actually, you know, people in the environmental community for whom hopelessness is a political position. You know, I think not to, I don't want to oversimplify, but I think groups like Dark Mountain, there's a sense that the right thing to do is to give up and accept where we are. And again, I I understand that, but I I think it's very easy as someone, you know, living sort of in the global north, you know, who's middle class, who has a roof over their head to decide, oh, maybe I'm just going to give up. It's not so easy for other people. So, I really don't have much truck with kind of hopelessness as a political project. Hmm. And do you think that applies generally as well, like outside of environmental concerns uh, in terms of, you know, hopelessness being the kind of easy position, but something that we need to kind of fight against? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, you know, I, I think there's a difference between negativity. There's a difference between pessimism and hopelessness you know, and I and I, I actually don't think, I, I certainly think it's good to keep bringing our attention back to critique and bringing our attention mm. back to suffering and bringing our attention back to damage. That's no bad thing. But to completely give up, yes, I think often it's people who are in a comfortable position who can, who can do that. Um, but I wouldn't want to individually judge any kind of particular person. But yeah. again, I think as a sort of cultural response, I think it's, it's very unproductive. Yeah. One of the one of the phrases that I was particularly taken with, um, I think this maybe was uh, from the essay on hospitality, was the terrible intimacy of the non-human with us. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that idea of terrible intimacy. I think that the sort of terrible intimacy comes from almost, I think, you know, in that essay, I'm I'm drawing on um, this book, you know, uh, by Clarice Lispector, in which this character, G.H., sort of confronts a cockroach. And I think part of what makes that intimacy so terrible for G.H. is that she has to recognise that the human, this thing that has been, you know, valorised, placed at the kind of top of the chain of being and so on, that that kind of valorisation is a fantasy and that actually humans are as animal <laughs> as any other kind of creature and that humans are as kind of um, imperfect and fractured and dirty and strange as any of those creatures. So I think part of that is terrible, that recognition that we're not necessarily as special as we think we are and that we're not 
we, we don't actually transcend our physical selves and our physical experiences, that we actually have to kind of stay in the reality of that to actually experience kind of the truth of our being. And I also think terrible because it draws on us a sense of responsibility and a sense of connection to things that we want to ignore, even things that on a quite basic level we find disgusting, things that we want to separate ourselves as far as possible from. But actually, in recognising that intimacy, we recognise kind of the truth of, of how we all live. But I think that can be a very painful and quite a shocking experience, but also quite a thrilling one at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I think in that essay, you sort of, um, when you're talking about this character uh, identifying with the cockroach, perhaps the uh, the phrase that you use about her sort of seeing that the cha- or them seeing that the chain of being with humans at the top is a kind of uh, fallacy, mm. um, and obviously that's a kind of that phrase could easily define a lot of the essays in the book that you're sort of really um, knocking down this hierarchy. And I think in that essay, it's about this idea that we're no less disgusting than the cockroach, perhaps. Um, And it's something that we sort of, it's been conditioned into us um, over time through, you know, society, through religion, through culture, through literature, Mm. art, etc., that we are this kind of higher form of life. Um, But actually, to sort of step down off of our own pedestals in a way, that's how we can start to really uh, face the sort of climate and environmental situations that we need to face. Mm. I just think that's a very um, sort of very helpful way of looking at things as for someone who's not necessarily always been knee deep in that world or in that sort of um, culture of thinking about these things. Yeah, and I think that's just something else that I quite liked about the collection as a whole. Again, it's that you don't need to be um, entirely clued up on the environment or on the issues that mm. you talk about in order to sort of access it. It's um, There's always a way in. There's always a way that you can sort of chart yourself in this book. That's definitely really good to hear. And I think it's important, you know, that it, it sort of environmentalism is for everyone. We all live on a planet. You know, the, the idea that you have to be a, a sort of particular type of person, I think is really not only untrue, but kind of dangerous. And I think you see a lot of those issues, for example, in kind of debates around, you know, Extinction Rebellion and, you know, not to take a particular position on Extinction Rebellion, but I think it's interesting to see that so many of the kind of issues around that group are the issues of representation and the issues that actually to be an environmentalist you know, the truth of the environmentalists would just to be whoever you are, that no one should have to feel that they have to kind of take on a certain sort of look or a certain kind of lifestyle or a certain, even a certain level of knowledge to engage with these issues because they're so relevant to each person. Mm. Yeah. I know I've already mentioned this to you, that mm. uh, panpsychism, on, on panpsychism, is my favorite essay in the book. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit, but first I wondered if you could sort of explain for our listeners who might not have read the book yet, what is panpsychism? So panpsychism is the idea that everything, so, you know, uh, non-human beings, but also inanimate objects, has the potential for mind. So the idea comes from this kind of philosophical thinking that considers if mind exists in the world, then it must have come from the inanimate, which of course is where human beings, you know, began. And if inanimate sort of matter could gain consciousness in us, then all matter, inanimate or otherwise, has that potential. In the book, I kind of draw out that idea. It's slightly at a slant. 
I don't really debate panpsychism as a kind of philosophical truth or otherwise mm. in the essay, but I use it as a starting point to consider the possibility that non-human beings and non-human landscapes shape and kind of define the forms in which we think. So we don't just think about them, they actually influence what is possible for our thought. And I also kind of argue that you know, with the loss of non-human landscapes and beings, our capacity to think is also impoverished, uh, impoverished and, and poisoned. Mm. Yeah, I think that um, the, the the exact phrase that you use, I've written down here, forms of thought die too, when you mm. sort of lose these these spaces or these um, kind of different, uh, yeah, things in the environment. And that, that sort of made me think, because I read the book um, in the summer and um, I, I had a proof and this was obviously just at the sort of end of the um, the first lockdown in the UK. And I was thinking about the sort of the way that my relationship personally with the environment with outdoors has changed so much just from that being, you know, for the space of three months, that was the my sanctuary was going outside of my home, uh, you know, even just for an hour to take a walk and be amongst mm. trees and skies and mud and everything else. It's like you don't sort of realize how much how important it is to you and to the way that you think and the way that you sort of process the world mm. until there's some kind of seismic shift and you can't. And in yeah. some ways, that's such a perfect um, metaphor for the climate emergency as a whole, because it is changing and we're not going to necessarily realize how much we need it until it starts to die out. Um, I just wondered as well, actually, the idea of kind of the outdoors in lockdown if you had any sort of thoughts on that as well if you found that that was something that uh changed for you maybe i think it definitely sort of even further kind of deepened my awareness you know as you were saying of that need i mean i was extremely lucky because i spent the beginning or the kind of large portion of the first lockdown in devon um, I usually live in York. I live separately from my partner. So my partner and I both before lockdown happened and we could see it was on the horizon. We went to his parents in Devon. Um, what that led to was it was the longest time I've ever spent in one go in a kind of natural so-called environment. Um, even though, of course, you know, it's incredibly human influence. It's a farm. But it was so fascinating. And I think the one thing that I found particularly powerful was actually being able to watch the seasons up close. And I actually think a lot of people even living in cities found that because they were going to the same place, you know, park, garden every day. So I don't think that was necessarily just purely because I was there, but being able to watch those changes and those shifts and how sort of subtle they are, it's such a sort of revealing and it's such a life-giving experience because I think it ties you again back to the kind of rhythms that you are also a part of and it reminds you how much you are part of the sort of non-human world and that those kind of rhythms and shifts also affect you and your body and the way that you think and the way that you move so being able to kind of give that close attention to the environment really felt like a gift at what was you know obviously a horrible and, and you know extremely worrying time mm. Yeah, I think that a lot of other people I know as well, um, again, even people who are more kind of environmentally conscious to begin with, I think oh. have articulated the same sort of thing that you've just said as well. 
I think it's in some ways as well. I'm so glad that the, the first lockdown happened during, you know, spring and summer when everything was in bloom and everything's really, it's like <laughs> a little bit, yeah. re, uh, you know, re regenerative uh, rather than this lockdown, which is like, oh, everything's terrible outside and everything's terrible inside. <laughs> we, we, it was also just incredible weather every single day, which was strange. And, you know, my mom was shielding and, and you know, so couldn't see her and but we just constantly were sharing you know photos and stories of various kind of non-human sort of things that we'd witnessed and to be able to have something to share like that as well I think mm. is also a real boon for human connection because it's not like you have any interesting stories to tell about your own life but to be able to kind of make a connection and feel that change still exists in that kind of very sort of frozen moment I think is also really beneficial and kind of important yeah, I think I became obsessed with looking at photos of trees, <laughs> just scrolling through Twitter and Instagram, just seeing other people's photos of trees. Uh, um, at the end of the, the panpsychism essay, you say, one mind is never going to be enough for me. Mm. What did you mean by that? And what I meant by that really just re kind of relates back to what I was talking about, this idea that the human mind is not enough you know i think that there's really often this idea that everything that we need from the non-human world can be defined defined as kind of physical survival so you know even the most kind of non-environmentalist people have to recognize that you know we need food and you know, from, from the earth and, and water and you know, so forth but i think that we also need the non-human for our mental survival and i think often even the recognition of that is slightly sentimentalized and flattened out this idea that nature is a kind of relaxing backdrop, you know, is something I kind of challenge slightly in the book. Um, yes, nature can be relaxing, but I don't think that that's really, I don't think that that kind of tells us the whole story about our relationship with the non-human world. And for me, that's partly because nothing could be more destructive to the to kind of mental experience and mental health than being stuck inside yourself, being kind of trapped in this kind of circular feedback loop loop of the only human. And I think we need non-human minds of all kinds to help us kind of free ourselves from some of the patterns that we get stuck in, and also just to kind of expand our awareness and our understanding. Yeah, fantastic. I want to move on to the essay on greenness, uh, in which you talk uh, primarily about uh, the artist. Anna Mendieta. Um, and you then also bring in uh, the poem that I know you mentioned earlier, Gawain in the Green Knight. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those two different sort of uh, worlds, as it were, and where the idea sort of where you started seeing these kind of overlaps between them, um, mm. in particular as well, talking about Anna Mendieta, because I know that um, I'm pretty sure I hadn't I hadn't really heard of her work much before this year. And then suddenly I'm kind of seeing seeing her everywhere. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's a sort of psychological phenomenon or if that is uh, a cultural one. So I wondered if you might talk about um, her kind of relevance and, and uh, eminence as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, Anna Mendieta, you know, is a Cuban-American artist who I've been um, interested in for a really long time. I think the first time that I actually kind of engaged with her work sort of deeply was a few years ago when um, they put on an exhibition of, of her work at the Hayward Gallery and it struck me so intensely and I think that's because her work is very much drawn from the physical so all of the kind of visual representations of her work are, are sort of videos and photographs that's not wholly true she also makes some kind of sculptural objects but most of her work is performance which is recorded 
as I say, photographed or filmed. And uh, things like the Silhouetta series um, involve her sort of putting her body in certain non-human places and drawing also on some of her sort of um, Cuban and more generally uh, kind of Latin American sort of heritage and history to explore ideas of kind of what it might mean to connect to the earth, what it might mean to connect to being and, and so on. And I think that part of the reason that perhaps her work is, is having such a resurgence, I mean, there's, there's, been for a long time a kind of campaign to sort of remember Anna Mendieta because you know very sadly it seems that she was was killed um, by her partner um, in an act of domestic violence and sort of his work has kind of continued to be shown at various galleries um, and there's been a, a kind of huge uh, sort of feminist um, kind of outpouring called Where is Anna Mendieta? So Partly, I think it's the work of kind of feminist activists that has, you know, continued to draw her to our attention. But also, you know, I think this this kind of moment of environmental crisis, her work speaks to really deeply because I think what she achieves in her art is that kind of terrible intimacy with the non-human. She manages to represent that. She manages to engage deeply with it. And at the same time, the non-human is always othered. The non-human is always separate. She doesn't try and create a sort of sentimental, purely harmonious, kind of holistic sense of the human and non-human holding hands. She always sort of keeps that kind of fierce difference at play in the work that she creates, um, which is part of why I think she's such a genius. Um, in this essay, um, I was sort of interested in Grey and the Green Knight as a sort of continuation of this sort of mythical or legendary figure of the Green Man, which is a sort of figure, a foliate head with leaves coming out of his mouth that you often see in churches, but it's a kind of pagan image. And Grey and the Green Knight, um, which is a medieval poem, uh, sort of anonymously written, we don't know who wrote it, uh, sorry, medieval, uh, Middle English. Um, and in that poem, I think that we also see the kind of interrelation between the sort of Christian ideas of you know, chivalry and King Arthur's court and all those things that we're kind of used to, and an earlier kind of pagan recognition of the kind of strangeness of the non-human world. And I think that, you know, as I've said, Anna Mendieta's work also contains, you know, she's not particularly interested in kind of Christian imagery, but she contains that sort of connection between the human world that we know and the strangeness of the non-human. And she kind of figures that in the expression of her own body and her art. And so that for me was the connection between these two ideas. And actually it was quite useful for me to place them next to each other because it kind of helped me to understand how we might represent the relationship between the human and the non-human whilst keeping that difference intact, if that makes sense. Mm. And then the next essay in the book on pain, um, interestingly, is is it's obviously it's about pain it's about violence and it's about bodies and there's something kind of more gendered to it perhaps than you get in um obviously in, in a lot of the other essays what was it that that sort of drew you to this idea of exploring through the the texts that you use in that essay um to exploring this idea of kind of gendered violence and gendered pain i think often you know so often we hear again this quite sentimental idea that sort of women are more connected to the earth you know and 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 we kind of are more connected to nature and all this kind of thing which you know i i think is sort of fantastical i don't think that women's bodies have any particular more connection to the earth than than anyone else's but i think that the flip side of that kind of patriarchal metaphor is that often 
female bodies and animal bodies are considered to be, you know, lesser and less important and their pain is less important. And I sometimes think that we can understand or sort of help our understanding of the cruelty that's enacted on a lot of women and female identified people's bodies by looking at the way in which animal bodies are treated and vice versa. That's not to say that it's the same experience or to try and equalize those experiences in any way. But if we think about especially, you know, not just the eating of meat, but the very specific industrial complex of the ways in which meat is treated. So I'm thinking about these huge, and I talk about um, in the book, these kind of huge slaughterhouses, um, you know, in which, you know, cows are sort of never really properly see the light of day, you know, are fed on, on kind of, you know, antibiotic spiked food and so on. And of course, um, Ariana Raines in her book, The Cow links these two things together you know this wasn't my idea this was this kind of her idea in her text this idea that that kind of industrial abuse of animal bodies can be a way of understanding the ways in which women are treated and so I kind of just took from that collection of poetry and opened it out into thinking about you know pain and what we find acceptable what level of suffering we find acceptable in animal bodies and also in female bodies and that it helps us to understand who is considered valuable and what is considered valuable and to kind of also how much that pain is put under the carpet and ignored you know we don't want to see it we don't want to see that it's the food that we eat and we don't want to see that it's the kind of women and female identified people around us so for me that essay was just a kind of opportunity to kind of shine a light on what is obviously horrific cruelty but it's also important for us to recognize and, and kind of reckon with we talked a little bit about at the beginning about how the book begins with the diggers and with the sort of more political um more kind of historical concrete kind of uh ideas and then obviously the book finishes with your essay on mystery which is as you know <laughs> uh, mm. nebulous as it gets i guess mm. uh, so i wondered if you might just have any sort of uh, thoughts on, on why you wanted it to end there uh to sort of you know enclose the book that way mm. i suppose in a way it, it sort of connects to that desire that I was talking about to kind of link poetry and nonfiction. Mm. I think it's good to start somewhere concrete and to lay out your political affiliations but I would never want to suggest any delusion that I kind of have all the answers or that I have a kind of program for how we can sort of solve the environmental kind of conundrums that we're in. So it's it's partly that, it's a partly a recognition that no one voice can kind of define where we need to go but I think it's also that sense that when we are trying to ask ourselves the questions of what we need to do to change our relationship with the non-human and openness to mystery and openness to negative capability and openness to unknowing is I think crucial because as I think I said earlier we will never totally understand the non-human we will never totally contain it kind of within the ways that we think and unless we can become comfortable with that mystery, unless we can recognise our intimacy with that mystery and accept it as the way that things are, I think we're going to struggle to ever really achieve anything. So that's why I kind of wanted to circle back to mystery there. What are you currently reading and would you recommend it? Uh, yes, I'm currently reading um, Surrender by Joanna Pogo, which is uh, published by Fitzcarraldo. And it's a nonfiction book about um, the author in midlife going to the American West and considering issues of land, issues of 
kind of who belongs where and what and also what the West might mean kind of metaphorically, but also physically in this kind of time of environmental change. Um, I'm only about halfway through, but it's a really fascinating and really clearly written book that I'm enjoying a lot. And uh, so I know that in terms of strangers, you've got the second printing coming out very soon, which looks beautiful, by the way. Love the sort of green on black cover. And I know you're sort of still uh, doing the circuit, as it were, with, with strangers. But I wondered uh, if you had any idea what was next work-wise for you, well, writing-wise for you. Mm. Well, I'm really hoping that what will be next is some poetry um, mm. to kind of move back to that. It's still really in the early stages, so I kind of don't know what's going to become. But my hope is that I can, yeah, that I can kind of move back into that practice and get back into poetry because I miss it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, have you been working on any poetry since Strangers? Any have a little bit. Yeah. Any kind um, of themes emerging? Any uh, concepts? I think that, to be honest, and maybe this is true for my whole life, I'll probably be kind of treading these environmental themes forever. So, so I think you know potentially this will be my kind of poetic engagement with some of the environmental themes that I've um, explored in nonfiction in this book, but of course in a very different way. Yeah. So I'm I'm quite curious to see where it goes i've also got some kind of interest in potentially writing about about ritual um but i'll have to see how that all goes yeah sounds great i look forward to whatever whatever comes out next <laughs> Thank uh, you. as i'm sure the world does too on panpsychism when I go for a solstice swim on the south coast, I come out not feeling as refreshed as I might hope, still battling a summer cold, still worrying. Then above our heads as we dry off, a skylark comes hovering, tiny against the rolling blue sky, hollering out its scratchy, buzzing, kaleidoscopic song. The grooves of my mind resettle without being fixed, soda bubble brightness, wailing and rubbing song of liveliness and being alive. The bird has no interest in me, but his deliberate song is changing the font of my thought, taking my inwardness and flinging it open to the fizzing sea light. Nothing has changed, but, of course, it has. The heavy movement and being of fog slows down my inner monologue. The spacious lushness of a forest in spring fills me with weird and pleasurable expansiveness. The cold shush of snow against the window clarifies me and empties me out. Can anyone really deny that thought and thinking comes from the outside as well as the inside? That when the outside is terribly damaged, the inside will be also? Panpsychism is the theory that everything in nature has mind, or at least mind-like qualities. The arguments to support this range across philosophy and spirituality. Some animist religions see divine spirit in everything. Some Christians see God's nature in everything he created splinters of the great spirit in each part of the world. For secular panpsychists, the central argument is the argument from non-emergence, described here by leading panpsychist thinker David Skabina. It is inconceivable that mind should emerge from a world in which no mind existed. Therefore, mind always existed, even in the simplest of structures. Nothing in the cause that is not in the effect. Do rocks think? Or do they at least have a will to, if not life, then being, the continuation of what they are? 
Do trees, which communicate through roots and soil, which display crown shyness, where they avoid touching each other's leaves in the high canopy, display a sensitivity to being, an ability to express their will, a goal-directedness, which we might consider sentient? I don't know the definitive answer to these questions, but in the primordial mud which we came from, the chemicals, gases, atoms and electrons where we began, the potential for mind was there, impossible to locate or quantify, waiting. We can't describe or rationally prove other minds in the mud, other desires to live or continue to be, but that doesn't mean that they aren't there. When we think of the loss of ecosystems, of environments, of living beings, we most often consider the practical human cost. Or if we're being generous, we consider this alongside the loss for the environment or creatures themselves, their suffering and destruction. But I want to add another consideration to these crucial ones. And it is the consideration of mind. Sitting on the steps of my flat crying, I feel awful, stressed, sad, but I don't know why. I can't locate a single pressing issue that has, over the last few days, suddenly pushed me into this low mood. The terror of blank misery rising up from nothing is worse than the emotions themselves. Slowly, slowly, sitting on the steps, I realise what is happening. These are not my emotions. Living closely, intensely, with my beloved housemate, I have caught her emotions. Fighting her internal difficulties as she is, not wanting to say outright what she's going through or complain, her subconscious has nevertheless met mine. She does not have to tell me she is suffering for me to feel it in my body. Wordless mind to wordless mind. Is there not a version of this, infinitely more subtle and hard to pass, in the vibrations that we feel from the world beyond the human? We are not closed circuits, plastic wrapped, without words. Things still speak to us, jolt us, pain us, free us and change us. This isn't really surprising. The outside world, human and non-human, is not a painted backdrop to our lives and experiences, but makes them, is part of them. If you'd like to hear more from Rebecca as she briefly discusses her poetry collection, Witch, then please check out our Patreon page and subscribe to hear our very short bonus episode. Today, Rebecca and I discussed a range of books, including Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle, the works of Jamaica Kincaid and Jean Rhys, the anonymous Middle English poem Gawain and the Green Knight, the poet Banu Kapil, Daisy Lafarge's Life Without Air, A.K. Blakemore's forthcoming book The Manning Tree Witches, Clarice Lispector's The Passion According to G.H., Ariana Raines's The Cow, and Joanna Pocock's Surrender. Strangers is out now in a glorious new second printing from indie publisher extraordinaire Makina Books. I'd like to thank Rebecca again for joining us on the Your Shelf podcast, the Your Shelf community for supporting everything we do, and all of our wonderful listeners. See you again very soon for our special Books of the Year episodes.